is a judge that we face with no Christ in the lawyers bringing a briefcase. Can I invite you to make your way back to your seat? Man, that, uh, that time of singing messed me up, man. Anybody else get, get wrecked here this morning so far? Oh, man. Uh, I thank God for our, our worship team. Um, we have a, as you see, we have a large team that rotates every week and just so grateful for each of them and their commitment. Um, man, it is so good, so good to lift up high the name of Jesus where it belongs, high above all things. I want to pray as we get started this morning, and then I'm going to ask you if you want to hear from God today, all right? So let's pray. Father in heaven, um, I just, I'm so thankful, God, to be here right now. My heart is overflowing with fullness at the thought of Jesus' cross where he took my sin, Eric Rivera's sin, the very thing, God, that separated me eternally from you. When I was still a sinner, Christ died for me and for everyone here who had put their faith in him. Not only did he die, but he rose from the dead. And you're coming back, Jesus. And Lord, when we have this vision and perspective, well, how it causes everything else to be so much more peripheral, uh, it, it prioritizes us better, Lord, when we just see the fact that Jesus is coming quickly. And Lord, from the time uh, it takes between either we go to meet you or you come to get us, um, it's short, relatively speaking, God, and we just want to be faithful to it. Oh, Lord, I just pray for uh, this community, this neighborhood, and for the churches that are surrounding us other sisters and brothers and people who just love you like we do, God. We lift up these churches. Um, God, we pray that you cause them to, to flourish, God. We pray for Victory Worship Center, for City Lights, God. Uh, God, we pray for Cross Culture Church, for Bethany Baptist, and Park Community Church, God, for Good News Bible Church, and Chicago Tabernacle, Belmont Assembly of God, and so many other churches, Lord, that are in our neighborhood and within minutes of drive from here. And Lord, I know that right now they're gathering to do the very thing that we're trying to do. And I just brag about you, God. And Lord, I pray you bless those churches, God. Cause them to flourish, God. Give them vision to reach their community, God. And may we always see each other as co-laborers and not competition, God. Um, people are dying around us, and we have no business fighting over things that are not even ours, Lord. Um, Lord, this city is yours. And we just want to claim it for the name of Jesus. And I pray that we would lock arms, God, to that end that your name will be lifted high and the people who are enemies of Jesus will become daughters and sons of the living God through faith. So Lord, uh, bless us here at the brook. Um, God, cause us to have a vision for you. We pray for my, uh, my brothers and sisters who are here. Would you encourage them and inspire them in their faith? And I pray for those who don't know you here today. Um, God, that they will come to know Jesus. That's our great desire for them, Lord. And so now, Lord, I ask that you would speak through me, your servant, God. Um, there is nothing special about me, but empowered by your spirit, God, in many ways, there's nothing normal either um, because you are at work in me and in this place, God. Spirit of God, would you speak through me with boldness and clarity and wisdom and instruct our hearts in such a way, God, that moves us to action, God. We don't want to be those who become spiritually unhealthy because we're feasting on good food but never get to working out. We want to be diligent 
and living for you. So God, guide our steps, we pray. In all things, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Who wants to hear from God this morning? Yes, I'm with you on this. We've been working through a series we've titled 24-7, where we want to see what it's like, the day in the life of a Christian, of a follower of Jesus. And I pose this question to us, what is a typical day to look like? Because I think sometimes we wonder about that. And it's so easy to become sidetracked because so much of life is extremely distracting, isn't it? And what we want to say, okay, from the moment we wake up to the time our head hits the pillow, what should our lives look like? And we want to say what this day in the life looks like. And like Mount Tell Jordan, this is how we do it, okay? We have a vision for God's kingdom first. Yeah, yeah thank you for all you guys who got that one. Uh, we have a, a vision for God's kingdom to advance in our city. And that's our starting point. We want to see Jesus just in every aspect of our lives. And then when we wake up to spend our waking minutes with him, saying, Jesus, we, we just want to come to commune with you because what's ahead of us is beyond anything we can handle on our own strength. And it's an, it's an acknowledgement from the moment we get up, Jesus, I need you. And then we got to go to work or school or, or maybe we're at home caring for someone. And we've got something ahead of us that takes our energy, our attention, and with that out comes all kinds of temptations and struggles, um, joys and sorrows and frustrations. This is part of life. But even in our working in particular, but in all our activity, we can have Jesus bear in these aspects by surrendering to him and saying, Jesus, would you influence my coworkers? Would you influence my work ethic? My, my, my uh, commitment, my convictions in the workplace, let it, let it reflect my knowledge and relationship with you. And so we've talked about these aspects in the weeks uh, previous. Today what I want to talk about is friendship as part of our 24-hour life. We're going to talk about some friendship goals today. That hashtag has trended many a times on social media because we all have a longing for friendship. And you know what? God provides friendships for us. He has created us for companionship. He's created us to be a people who have others around us to inspire our lives. And yet, ironically, right, this is the source of many of our hurts. The source of many of our hurts has to do with one of the provisions God gives us for our joy. Friendship can be a tricky thing, can it? And you know, sometimes what happens is because of um, unmet expectations in friendship, whether they're good expectations or wrong ones, we have caused ourselves to withdraw into isolation and to really keep people at arm's length. It's tempting for all of us to do it, especially when we've been hurt or especially when we have things in our own life we don't want others to know about. And so what we do is we fill our lives with other things like entertainment, like hobbies or work, and we have those things to supplement relationship when God meant us for friendship. God tells Adam and says in the book of Genesis, it is not good for man to be alone. And of course, in context, he provides Eve in which Adam would marry. But I think there's a greater principle at work there that we often miss because it's not for everyone to get married. The principle is that Adam was made for companionship. And we can say it right away, but God, didn't he have you? He walked with you. It was you and him, God, and that's good. But God also realized Adam needed something tangible with him. He needed a friend. 
And by application, it's true for all of us. We need companionship. We need people in our lives to spur us on. We need friendship. And I think a lot of times, rather than being alone, we become a lone ranger because we don't know how to be a friend. We don't know what to do with friendship. We've never had a friendship, but we've never seen a healthy one. And so we need to look at this and say, God, what are some friendship goals? Uh, Let me say this one thing, and I will get back to this at the end of my message. But it's interesting. God calls Abraham his friend in the Bible. Isn't that cool? Second Second Chronicles, as well as in James and Isaiah, God calls Abraham his friend, which means God has a relationship with Abraham where they are connected relationally, and that was necessary for Abraham. And it's based on ultimately Abraham's faith, and we'll talk about that in a moment or a little bit later. So not only has God given us this vertical, but he's given us horizontal friendships. In particular, um, brothers, men, you need other men in your lives. Men, you need other men. You need friends in your life. Because when we don't have friends as men, friends who have a godly perspective, we'll talk about this, we find ourselves easily drifting into isolation. Sisters, you need uh, other women in your life. And yes, there's a place for men to have lady friends and vice versa, but that's a, that's a place that can be a very slippery slope, especially for married men and married women. But I, I want to really hone in on brothers, you need men, ladies, you need sisters, okay? That's, that's what I want to press upon because what I'll be talking about today is really focusing there. And I know for some of you, like, man, this has been a place of hurt in my life, and I want to talk about maybe ways that God can help you cross over some things. But when it comes down to it, um, the Bible gives us descriptions of friendship that are sprinkled in different places. Proverbs 17, verse 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Some people see that as a contrast. You have friends that are friends, and you have brothers that are enemies. Um, that might be one interpretation of it, because oftentimes we do see that, right? But perhaps it is what's, what we call synonymous parallelism, which is that each statement is saying the same thing in different ways. A friend loves at all times, and a brother, or like a friend, is born for the days you face adversity. And in that way, your friend or your brother is there, your sister is there, when you're facing crises in your life. And what Proverbs probably is showing us here is that companionship, friendship is meant, that God's provided it for us, for us to experience love at a companion level and experience help in times of adversity. And if you're like me, I want that in my life. And even more so, I want to be that kind of friend. So as we talk about friendship today, I want your impulse to be, how can I be like that? Not like, how dare my friends not be that good to me? All right, you with me here? Okay. How can I be that kind of friend to others? All right, let's get this thing straight from the beginning. In order to talk about that, I'm going to zero in on a story in Scripture that oftentimes gets missed because it's kind of interwoven through a bigger story. And the story I'm going to talk about is a friendship between a man by the name of David and his close friend named Jonathan. David's the king of Israel, the second king of Israel, but he's not king yet when their friendship develops. What I love about this story is it shows two men in particular having such a close friendship that oftentimes in our day and age, we see them like, that's weird. But the problem is because we don't understand friendship. And actually, you're the weird one. I'm the weird one. And so what David and Jonathan do, it shows us how we need that in our lives. 
wives, all right? Brothers, you need men. Sisters, you need ladies. And let's talk about what that looks like. If you could, would you meet me in the book of 1 Samuel and in chapter 18? 1 Samuel chapter 18. As you're on your way there to the Bible, it's in the Old Testament. There is a Bible in a chair in front of you, a blue one there. If you haven't got a Bible, we'd love you to take that one home and keep it. Meet me in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 18. As you're turning there, I'm going to give you some backstory. Um, about, about how, to, how to understand this. And let me say one more thing. If you don't know where 1 Samuel is, there is a table of contents in the front of your Bible, and there's no shame in using that. We use table of contents in all other books, and let's use it in your Bible too. Just see there, t- page number. It's in the Old Testament. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. All right? The books of 1 and 2 Samuel talk about the kingdom of Israel. Before 1 Samuel... The king of Israel was God himself. And God always told his people, I am a sufficient leader for you. But as their wayward hearts progressed, they ended up looking at God and looking at a guy named Samuel, who was the judge of the land, and telling Samuel, give us a king like the rest of the nations. We want a king whose hand we can shake. We don't want this, this God king. We want a king we could see with our eyes. And God's like, haven't I been a good king? And the answer is absolutely yes. And whenever harm has come, it's because they've forsaken him. But they see the problem with God, not with themselves. And so God says, all right, I'll give you a king. And he gives him a king by the name of Saul. Saul was a man who was mighty in stature, physically speaking, but was a very timid man who had to grow into being a king. God had given his promise to to uh, Saul, but it was a conditional one, saying, as long as you follow me, I will bless you and bless those after you. And what happens in Saul's life is he begins to become wayward. He begins to crumble under the pressures of people-pleasing. That's one of Saul's greatest flaws. He was afraid of what others would think about him, so he tried to please people over against pleasing God. And he did this several different times, ultimately, where God's like, you know what, Saul? You are not fit to be king anymore, I'm going to remove you from, this, from, king, from being a king and your children after you, and I will set up a different king. And that's in 1 Samuel 15 where he tells him this. Well, lo and behold, two chapters later, we see this great giant named Goliath staring down God's people, the armies of Israel. And King Saul there, as cowardly as he was, was afraid of this giant. And by the way, no, no knocking him. This giant was nine feet tall, and he was known to be a killing machine. But the problem with Saul was... He didn't trust God to give him victory over this opposing army. And there there is this young teenage boy who hears this giant mocking God and his armies. And this young boy is like, who does this guy think he is? He comes to the king, says, hey, I've killed bears with my bare hand and lions in order to protect the sheep of my father's household. What difference is this man who mocks the armies of God? And so this young man, whose name is David, grabs five stones from a brook and picks them up, slings them at Goliath, hits him between the eyes. Goliath comes crashing down. David picks up Goliath's own sword and does what? Cuts off his head. I love teaching this to kids, by the way. I taught this in RC a few weeks ago when I was with the kids, and they're all looking at me like, what? I'm like, isn't that cool? Um, This is where the story picks up, though. David picks up Goliath's head, and the King Saul brings his commander, Abner, and says, who is this kid? Bring him over to me. And it tells us in 1 Samuel 17, David walks over to him with Goliath's head in his hand still, 
and has a conversation with King Saul. And this is where we pick up in chapter 18 where Jonathan meets David. Look in chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as Saul had finished, or David had finished speaking with Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took, took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Yeah, that's a warrior you want to keep in your, back, in your back pocket. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. We're going to learn some lessons about Jonathan and his friendship with David. The first of which is this. Jonathan was not a reluctant friend. That's the first thing I want you to do. Jonathan was not a, a reluctant friend. I love how it says, as soon as he had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan's soul was knit to the soul of David. Like Jonathan is there, seeing Goliath's head in his hand, watching David talk to his dad, and Jonathan's like, this dude, I, I need to know this guy right here, all right? And what's really cool is, um, we oftentimes don't understand this, Jonathan was just like David. In fact, Jonathan had brought military victories against the Philistines when his dad was too cowardly, too. Jonathan was a young, courageous man who also fought on behalf of God and had great faith. And so Jonathan sees David, and he's not reluctant to bring him in his friend, as a friend, even though some of us might think, if I were in those shoes, I might feel threatened by David. But Jonathan doesn't do that. He sees David, and he says, hey, I got some things in common with this guy. Jonathan is a good judge of character, and he says, I want him to be my friend. First point about friendship and friendship goals is be a friend that's not a reluctant friend. Praise your friend's strengths. Don't be critical of their flaws and set yourself against them. Jonathan is not reluctant. He brings David in, and then he, gives, he makes a covenant with David. He gives him his robe, his sword, his armor, his belt, and his bow. He gives him all of his royal garments to, exp to express his commitment to his friendship. That, that's, a, that's a rare kind of commitment. But Jonathan had it. It's pretty remarkable. In a day's time, David gets the greatest sword in the Philistine army, Goliath's, and one of the greatest swords in the Israeli army, Jonathan's. And here, Jonathan and David's friendship begins. Their souls were knit together. We need that kind of friendship in our lives, family. You need people, you need someone in your life who you can say, my, my soul is knit with this person at a very real friendship level. Brothers, men, you need a man in your life like that. Ladies, you need a sister in your life like that. That's not, that this is a right thing. God made us for this. And Jonathan and David begin to understand friendship at that level. Well, let's continue on in the story because what we find here is the story of John, Jonathan and David's friendship is interwoven into, as I mentioned, a bigger story. And the bigger story is how Saul does the opposite of his son, Jonathan. 
Saul begins to become jealous about David. David would go off to war and fight battles and destroy the armies of the Philistines and come back. And people were like, whoa, what did this dude just do? I mean, look at the song they begin to sing in chapter 18, verse 7. When he came back from battle, the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. I mean, imagine Saul coming in like, oh, you struck down your thousands. Like, yeah. And and David is ten thousands. And all of a sudden, that was no longer a compliment, right? And Saul begins to begin very jealous. He's like, they're they're saying David's killed more guys than me. David was a great warrior, but Saul becomes jealous. And what Saul begins to do is start watching his back. You see, as I mentioned earlier, Saul knew something many others didn't know. And that was God had a promise. And his promise was that he would remove Saul and set up another outside of his family, in his place. And Saul is looking at David and like, you're, you're the one, aren't you? In chapter 18, Saul throws a spear at David because he hires David to play a musical instrument whenever he'd have this, 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 these bouts of anger and these wicked thoughts. And David would play music to kind of soothe Saul. But Saul would get mad, pick up a spear, and throw it at David. He tries to kill him out of his jealousy and rage. It doesn't work. David eludes him, and then Saul thinks of plan B in chapter 18 in order to remove David. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cause David, I'm going to tell him, you can have my daughter as your wife. If you bring to me, this is really gross, but it's a true story, 100 foreskins of Philistine soldiers. You hear me? Last, last time I checked, that's not a normal request, first of all. But second of all, in order to answer that request, David then has got to go off and kill 100 soldiers and circumcise them and bring the foreskin to Saul. <laughs> Saul's rationale, yeah, this, this is the reading of God's word, right? Saul's rationale is David will never survive that. So what does David do? He brings some guys with him, and he brings back 200 foreskins. Gets Saul as, Saul's daughter as his wife. Saul's plan B, number two, did not work out. So Saul comes with a third plan in chapter 19, verse 1. Let's look at that together. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. See that? Saul tried to kill him himself. It didn't work. Tried to use his daughter to get him killed. That didn't work. So now Saul just straight up asks his son, Jonathan, who is a great warrior, and all of his servants, can you do me the favors of removing David? Now, as you already see this tension brewing, there is something going on here in Jonathan's heart. Jonathan and David have their soul knit together and have made a covenant before God. Jonathan loves David, and now his dad asked him to kill him. Hear this. Jonathan is the, only, is the one who has the most to gain from doing this. Jonathan kills David. What does that mean for Jonathan? Who's the next king of Israel? Jonathan. But Jonathan sees God's plan. He's a man of faith. And Jonathan proves himself not just to be a not reluctant friend, but secondly, to be a reliable friend. Look what it says here. 
Again in verse 1, And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, see that contrast, but Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David. Hear that? Jonathan told David. He said, hey, this is my dad's plan. Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. Jonathan is looking out for the guy who's probably going to replace him. Verse 3, Jonathan goes on to say, And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. Verse 4, And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul. Notice that. He's a friend who speaks well of his friend to someone else who hates him. He didn't go with the, with the gossip chain of, oh, yeah, that David, man, he really is something else, isn't he? No, he was the same friend in private as he was in public. And he speaks well to his father about David. And he says, let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hands, and he struck down the Philistine, referring to Goliath, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? This is a good friend right here. And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as he was before. Notice that. Jonathan is a reliable friend who's the same friend in private with other people than he is in public with his friend. And so much so that he would even confront his father and persuade his dad, the king of Israel, to not do what he had planned to do, although Jonathan was the one to benefit the most from his dad's plan. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Jonathan is proving to be that friend today. Family, I, I want to I just help us understand this. You don't need a thousand friends, although you may have that many in Facebook. Um, friends are good, and there's different levels of friends. We'll know people better, some others better than others, and that's going to happen naturally, right? There's only so much capacity we have as individuals. But you need that person, one or two brothers, you need that one or two men in your life, at least. Sisters, the same with ladies in your life who are going to be that reliable friend, that reliable friend. And you yourself need to be that kind of friend to them. A friend who sticks closer than a brother who will be a friend in private with among other people than you are, as you are in public. Jonathan was not reluctant, and he was also reliable as a friend. We learn more in chapter 20 because King Saul, his heart changes quickly. His son persuades him for a moment, but then Saul's realizing, no, David's coming for me. So what Saul does, he's like, you know what, let's go, I'm going to go arrest him in his chambers when he's there with my daughter, which is his, his, now um, David is married to. I'm going to go arrest him and bring him and execute him. So Saul sends his servants to get David. David's wife finds the plan and tells him to get away, to run away. David runs away. And basically, his wife does a cover-up for him. Saul is livid now. He finds his own family not supporting 
his plan. And David then is a wreck. He's like, what have I done to Saul but love him, but but stand up for him, but to sing his praises? And in chapter 20, David's angst comes to a head. Look what it says in chapter 20, verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, this is Jonathan speaking, you shall not die. Behold, my father does, not, uh, does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, notice this, there is but a step between me and death. And then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. Hear this. David is coming to Jonathan saying, like, I know your dad wants to kill me. Jonathan's like, hey, just, he, he'll, never, he'll never do it without coming to me first. I'm his, I'm his counselor. And David's like, he knows that we're friends. And I love what Jonathan does here. He doesn't keep fighting against David. He's like, all right, what do you need me to do then? He's a friend who is, this third thing is, he's relentless as a friend. At any point, Jonathan could have been like, you know what, David? You are causing me a lot of liability right now. Our friendship is not working in my favor here. I'm becoming more and more isolated from my father. Um, There's a lot more tension. But David's relentless. He persists in being a friend even when things were difficult because he was a friend to David, and he saw David's integrity and David's character. He persisted in this. He stood with him even though there would be a cost in doing so. I love how Proverbs 27 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And what we see is these two men whose souls are knit together, sharpening one another in their faith. Jonathan demonstrating persistency in his, faith, in his friendship. He is not reluctant, he is reliable, and he is relentless in his friendship. Fourthly, we see is this Jonathan is refreshing in his friendship. And this is what I mean here. Well, Jonathan says, all right, David, what do you need me to do? And, John, and David's like, you got to tell me. You got you to investigate here. And Jonathan's like, all right, this is what we're going to do. Here's the plan. Jonathan tells David, all right, this is the feast of the new moon is coming. We'll have a week long of eating. He says, David, don't, don't go to the feast. Hide out into the woods. Uh, this, is, this is the plan. And if Saul gets upset that David is absent from the meal, then you know that he has it out to kill you. But if Saul's like, all right, it's okay that he's not here, then all is good, all right? And so that's the plan that they, de- they, they devised. And, and basically their plan was, when, I, when Jonathan finds out the truth, he's going to go out to a field, take his bow and arrow, and shoot it out into the air. And he's going to have a servant boy retrieve the arrow. And he tells him, all right, David, if you hear me, tell the servant boy, the arrow is beyond you, that means you got to flee. If you hear me say that the arrow is beside you, then you come back here and you're safe. You're all good. So this is their plan. What I love here is Jonathan is finding a way to help David. He's offering him a heartfelt counsel and wisdom here. And that's why I said it's refreshing. It gives life. It's life-giving to David because he knows he's got a friend who's looking out for him. Proverbs 27, 9 says, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his heart, his earnest counsel. 
his earnest counsel. And that's what Jonathan does. Jonathan gives David this counsel. He goes back, has the meal with his dad. Saul notices the first day David's not there. He thinks nothing of it. He's like, all right, it's cool. Second day, he's like, all right, Jonathan, where's David at? He should be here. And David's like, oh, he went back home to visit his family in Bethlehem. He had a meal to be at. He'll be back afterward. Saul gets livid. He's angry. And Jonathan realizes David was right. He's going to die. David runs out to the field, shoots his arrow, says to the servant, the arrow's beyond you. They know that. And then they come together, David and Jonathan do. And notice what it says here in verse 41 of chapter 20. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. They kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. They, they kissed one another and wept together. Now, the kissing in Middle Eastern culture is a kissing on the cheek. Um, I had experience of that when I was in Uruguay, South America. The first time I greeted a guy, kissed me on the cheek, did not expect that. But it's totally cultural. And they began to weep together. They began to weep together. Uh, now, is Jonathan's counsel refreshing, but it's also real. That's the next thing. He's real. He keeps it real with his brother here, with his good friend. He's, he's not trying to sugarcoat anything. He's like, you got to get out of here. You've got to leave. This is not a safe place for you any longer. The reason Jonathan is so for David here is he understands God's promise to David. In fact, look at chapter 20, verse 15. Jonathan says to David, do not, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan realized that God had made a promise to David, and he, he's operating out of that promise. See, a good friend does that. This is where words are refreshing and real. When we understand God's word and its truth, and we cause it to bear in our lips, in our friendships. And Jonathan's like, God has made a promise and I'm going to operate in that promise. I'm going to believe God for it, which means David's going to replace me one day. And what Jonathan firmly believed is that David would be king and Jonathan would be his right-hand man. That was, that was Jonathan's thought. It doesn't quite work out that way, and that's later another time. But so we see this is, this is the way their friendship unveils. I love, I love that Jonathan is a friend who speaks what needs to be heard. That's a marker of a good friend. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. What Proverbs is telling us and what Jonathan exemplifies is that a friend that keeps it real with you is a true friend, even when that truth hurts. You hear me? Even when the truth hurts, but that's the mark of a good friend. Yes, we have to be wise in how we bring forth truth, but if we withhold truth, we're not being a friend. And sometimes in our friendships, we get hurt and wounded because we don't like hearing the truth. That's not a fault of the friend. All right, that, that this, maybe they didn't bring it the right way, but we need the truth. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. What would you rather have, an enemy give you a kiss or a friend give you the truth? And Jonathan is a friend that brings the truth. We see these five qualities of Jonathan. He's not reluctant. Bring it in. He's not, he doesn't feel David's a competitor here. He says, here, he's a good guy. I need this kind of man in my life. I need his brother in my life. He's reliable as a friend. He's same one in private as he is in public. He's relentless no matter what the cost. He's like, hey, this is a good friend. I'm not flaking out on him. He's refreshing. He's bringing God's truth to bear in their friendship. And he keeps it real with him, no matter how hard the truth was. 
That's the kind of friend God wants you and I to be. The kind of friend that, that is true to our friendship. Somebody once said that our friends can be asset friends or liability friends. And I love that distinction here. Now, I want to talk briefly about the people we surround ourselves with, right? I've been pressing on us the kind of friend we need to be, but these are the kind of people we surround ourselves with. Because some of us uh, need to understand this distinction between asset and liability friends. There are friends for us who may not believe what we believe, but nonetheless are good friends, asset friends. And there may be some who don't believe what we believe and our liabilities in that they push us away from what we believe. There also might be friends who believe what we believe, who are liabilities, because they don't spur us on in our faith. And so let's see the difference there. An asset friend is one who's not reluctant, like, like Jonathan was, but instead is devoted to the friendship. Like, hey, I'm committed to this friendship. An asset friend is reliable. Their friendship is not conditional. Of course, there's certain, like if our friends keep stabbing our back, and, but ultimately, like when we're looking at our friends, say, hey, I'm here for you. I'm, I'm a friend. I want to be a reliable friend to you. That's an asset friend. An asset friend is relentless. They're not flaky, at least not purposefully. I know we can all be flaky at different times. But as a friend, we say, hey, I, I want to be that friend to you. They're refreshing. They're not leeching. You know, sometimes we have friendships that just, they, they take from us, and we're realizing, like, why well, am I always empty? And then we sometimes have friends. Uh, an asset friend is the one who keeps it real and is not afraid to speak the truth. Sometimes they're fear those the way we respond. That's, that's, again, how we need to change. <clears throat> Liability friends conceal truth from you. Liability friends enable your sin. They don't hold you accountable, and they don't invigorate your faith. I was thinking about this in Scripture. There's a few different people that come to mind who have friends that are really no friends at all. They're the kind of friends where you say, friends like this, who needs what? Yes. So Judah, for instance, in the Bible. I shared this story with you back in uh, around Christmas time. Judah was a man who went, um, who went off to a foreign place and various series of events, lays with a prostitute and gives, and has no payment for her. This is in the Bible, trust me. And, and he gives her his signet ring and robe and says, I'll come back at a later time to give you payment. This, this, is, this is wicked stuff he's doing here. This is a deceitful heart. He goes back home, gets the money, but he himself doesn't go give the payment. Who does he send? His friend. That's a liability friend. That's when a friend needs to be like, what are you doing? Haman in the scriptures. He's in the courts of King Xerxes, and he was a man who hated Esther and Esther's people. If you remember the story of Esther, maybe you do. If you don't, that's all right. But he's a man who hated the people of God, and hated a guy named Mordecai and wanted everything he could do to kill this man. And he's constantly having conversations with his wife and with his friends about the situation. He ends up building this, um, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? A gallow, thank you, to hang Mordecai on in a twist of events. He gets hung on the own gallow he created because his friends encouraged him to build the gallow. With friends like that, who needs enemies? And then you have Job, whose friends come and hit Tim in a moment of weakness, and all they do is tell him how he's suffering because he must have done something wrong. And he's like, I haven't done anything wrong. They're like, no, surely you did. He's like, no, I haven't. Like, no, no, you probably did. That's not a good friend, all right? Like, hey, listen to the guy, all right, man? Like, um, so, so, so we see in Scripture this difference between asset and liability, friends. 
And then we got to look back in the mirror and say, what kind of friend are you then? What kind of friend are you to other people? We learn from Jonathan here important lessons of friendship. So how do we then cultivate the kind of friend we ourselves are to other people? Well, first, be the kind of friend you want. Be the kind of friend you want. Don't wait for others to do that for you. Secondly, be gracious to others and their shortcomings because that's the kind of friend you would want as well. Thirdly, eat with them. I just keep thinking about Scripture. I was, I was, I was torn on what to preach today, and uh, I went through like three or four different sermons in my mind. Poor Erica had to hear all of them. As my, I'm, sure I'm like, I don't know what to say this or that. Um, but I studied a lot about food this week, about eating together, because I wanted to initially talk about um, how to share meals together, and that kind of evolved into friendship. That's how I got here today. Nonetheless, food is central in the Bible. You eat 21 meals a week. At least you should. Take one of them, two of them, and eat it with a friend to cultivate friendship. I know for many of the real communities, we're going to have a potluck this week. I know at least one of them had a potluck last week. That's why we eat together. It's because we want to grow as friends. So eat some food together. Another way to cultivate this kind of friendship as you being this friend is to have conversations around life that include Jesus. Now hear this. Sometimes we think, well, I've got friends that, that don't believe in Jesus, that don't believe what I believe. That's cool. That's great. Do that. We need that. In fact, if you don't have friends in your life who, who, don't, who, who disagree with you, that's a problem. Have friends in your life who disagree with you. But still tell them about Jesus if he is really the Lord of your life. When we were in Israel, we heard a lady, a Jewish woman who is not a believer in Jesus. Her name, uh, I, won't, I won't say her name, but she, she was talking about her Christian friends. And she had this to say, and this struck us. She says, when a Christian friend doesn't talk to her about Jesus, then she knows they're not close enough yet because there isn't trust. So she sees a Christian friend that doesn't talk to her about Jesus as a problem and not a true friend because she knows, as she's studied the Bible, that Christians are to have Jesus as the Lord and master of their life. And so I tell you, let Jesus be on your lips. That's the kind of friend we need to be, even with others. Now, we're not trying to push down our faith on people. But man, if God answers a prayer, you tell that friend about it. If Jesus has done something in your life, tell your friend about what Jesus has done for you. That's for people who don't agree with you. But then you have other friends who might believe in Jesus like you do. Let Jesus be on your lips. It concerns me when I think of times, even my own friendships, where I haven't been as proactive talking about my faith and my other Christian friends. And when I hear of that, if Jesus really is the center of our friendship, why aren't we talking about him? And the more intentional we become then about talking about what Jesus is doing in our lives, our prayers, our burdens, we'll start becoming the kind of friend that we ourselves want in our own lives. And then fifthly, I want to say be patient. While friendships can form quickly, they really take time to forge deep depth. You know what I mean? It, it just takes time and investment and grace, and sometimes not being, being, in, not being, in, or being in odds with each other, and learning to work that through conflict together, that, that deepens friendship. Now, I want to bring this full circle here, because I mentioned to you that God calls Abraham his friend. And I mentioned to you how God has made us for friendship horizontally, and that's essential. 
And when I read Proverbs and I hear that there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother, I realize there's ultimately a friend who is found in Jesus himself. And I want to conclude with this, fam, because the truth of the matter is your friends will let you down. It's going to happen. And there will be times when you just say, I just feel alone. And you're by yourself. And it's in these moments we've got to remember that anything we experience horizontally in life that is of any good and redeeming value has a greater picture in the heavenly realm. I love what Jesus does in John 15. He knows that his friend, Judas, has just about, is about to go and betray him. And he talks to his disciples. And he says this in John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, says Jesus, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And then Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command. What Jesus is telling his disciples is that horizontally we are to love each other. But let's remember in our pursuit of being that kind of friend like Jonathan and David was, that that is fueled ultimately by our vertical friendship and relationship with our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the epitome of one who lays down his life for his friends. Jesus was not a reluctant friend. He came with one mission, and that was to go to the cross to redeem him. He was a real friend and told us how it is that your sin and my sin has separated us from God. And Jesus tells us that because he loves us. He kept it real with us. But as a real friend who was not reluctant, he became a reliable friend who said, I came to do the will of him who sent me. I'm not going to detract from the plan to redeem you from your sin. And he was relentless in his mission, so much so that in the Garden of Gethsemane, just minutes before he'd be arrested, he is uh, sweating drops of blood, knowing he's about to be betrayed, arrested, and suffer the wrath of God. But in his reliability as a friend to us and one who loves us, he said, not my will, but yours be done, O God. Are you with me here, family? He was not reluctant, but he was real. He was reliable, and he was relentless. And yes, his words are refreshing. Because when he stepped up out of the grave, he says, come to me in his teachings, all you who are weary, and you will find rest. He brings us into his family because he conquered sin and then he conquered death. So when you put your faith in him, you are forgiven, you are raised to eternal life, and you have the hope of glory. You can clap to Jesus for that. That's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That's a friend who never fails you. So whenever you're alone, you're not alone, family of God. Whenever you feel that no one's there, someone is there. There is a God who will never leave you or forsake you. And as you come to experience God's affection 
and walk with Jesus, obeying his commands, watch how he and his transforming Holy Spirit makes you the kind of person God wants you to be. And then horizontally, his truth bears on your relationships. That causes us to look differently when we wake up in the morning and start our day. Brothers, you need men in your life who are going to be these kind of friends to you and that you are going to be that kind of friend too that's rooted ultimately in your faith in Jesus. And sisters, you need those ladies in your life. And I know, as I mentioned, for some of us, these are places of fear, understandably, and hurt. But what I would tell you to do is your first step is go to your Heavenly Father and say, God, would you provide for me? Would you bless me with a friend and help me be that kind of friend to others? God, I'm scared. God, I've been hurt. God, I've got expectations that are not realistic, and I know I need those to, 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 to uh, be removed. God, help me do that so I'm not putting expectations on friends that they can never meet, that only you are meant to meet. But say, God, meet me in this place because you have meant for me to have friends in my life. And let's be those kind of friends that love at all times and be closer than a brother. Family, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, this is how we do it. This is how God wants us to lead our lives. You might be here today and you don't know God as a friend. And by friend, we're not meaning haphazard. Like th- th- there is a real devotion to Jesus that he calls you to have. As we conclude our service here in his closing song, I just want you to respond. I'd love for you to respond and say, Jesus, let me just get right with you first. Maybe it's for the first time you're saying, God, forgive me. I, I want to know you personally, intimately like this God. I mean, there's others of us who say, God, I just need to, I need to realign myself with you so I can see my relationships on this earth differently and properly. That's what God wants for us as we consider our friendship goals for his glory. Let's pray. Oh, God, I thank you, Lord, for giving us instruction in your word about things so practical as friendship. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't let our culture, the expectations of our world, and the teachings in social media dictate and determine the kind of friend we'll be and the kind of expectations we place on our friends. But instead, Lord, I pray that we would let your truth in your Bible and this word be what, what informs our lives, God. And God, if, if, if we're going to look at your word, ultimately we understand that truthfully, this all begins with a raising of our white flag before you and saying, God, I surrender myself to you. Have your way in my life, God. God, root out those aspects of sin. Uh, heal the wounds. Let me be the man. Let me be the woman. Let me be that youth that you want me to be. And so, God, I pray that we would all begin there today and then say, okay, God, now how do you want me to be towards others? Be glorified in us, God. Be lifted high in our lives from the moment we wake up until the time that our head hits the pillow. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.